Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura. Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Vadim's Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. The right to religious liberty has been re-described as a right to freedom from discrimination. Their spokespersons oftentimes say Christians are the single most persecuted, discriminated against group in America and in the world. That's today's guest, Nomi Stolzenberg, a law professor at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. Welcome to Sidebar. This is Mitch Winnick, the Dean of Monterey College of Law, and I'm joined today with my co-host, Jackie Gardena. Hello, Mitch. I'm so excited to be back and excited about our guest today. I'm Jackie Gardena, the Dean of the Colleges of Law, located in Ventura and Santa Barbara. Jackie, on today's episode of Sidebar, we're going to talk about the challenging topic of religion, and particularly the role that religion may be playing in the decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court. Mitch, this is a timely discussion because a recent religion case was considered by the U.S. Supreme Court. The case raised the question whether an offended observer who voluntarily attended a government-sponsored prayer vigil had been subject to a violation of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause, which prohibits government-sponsored religion. The court didn't take the case, but two justices, Kavanaugh and Thomas, issued statements that it was time for the court to eliminate the so-called fiction of an individual having the right to be protected from merely being offended by the presence of religious prayer at a public event. Given that seven of the current nine justices of the Supreme Court are Catholic or were raised Catholic, it is reasonable to question the influence that religion may be having on their decisions. I look forward to our guest today helping us understand both the history and current status of religion in the courts. Our guest today is Nomi Stolzenberg, a law professor at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law and co-director of the USC Center for Law, History, and Culture. We've invited Professor Stolzenberg to talk with us today because of her extensive research and writing on the topics of law and religion, and more specifically, religion and the U.S. Supreme Court. She is a frequent lecturer on the topic of religious discrimination and the interpretation and application of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, known as the Establishment Clause, and commonly referenced by the metaphor separation of church and state. She has also written on the controversial subject of whether religious beliefs of the current U.S. Supreme Court were a factor in their selection to the court, and whether these beliefs are reflected in their rulings. Nomi, on the topic of religion in the U.S. Supreme Court, there are so many challenging issues it's hard to know where to start. Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to talk with you and your audience. Nomi, the intersection of law, politics, and religion is highly controversial, but can you set the context for us? There has clearly been a specific agenda to recenter religion as both a political and legal priority in this country. Start us off by outlining the specific steps that have been taken. 
the Supreme Court did not get around to applying the Establishment Clause or the Free Exercise Clause to states, and then in the same breath also to local governments, which includes public school districts, until the 1940s. And at the heart of the legal theory, the claim is we want public funding for religious schools, securing public funding, deregulating religious schools, putting religion back into the public schools, putting prayer back into the public schools, but removing from public schools liberal educational policies, whether that means teaching evolution or liberal tolerance or the history of race and racism in America or LGBTQ rights. That battle has been on for the last 50 years. And it's been, a, as many have said, it's been a long game with the eye on the courts and above all the Supreme Court. What changed recently with the Supreme Court? There was a change in legal theories and a change in personnel on the courts that made them receptive to this new legal theory. They're both connected. The exactly. creation of the legal theory was to lay the groundwork yeah. for a court that would be receptive to that new legal theory. Right. And at the heart of the legal theory, the claim is we want public funding for religious schools. That gets redescribed as to deny religious schools public funding when secular schools get them. That's discrimination. They now have a 6-3 court that also believes it? Well, you have a court where six members are products of the conservative movement, which has different wings. My guess about each justice's personal biography and psychology, my guess is that the chief justice he is more of a product of that more economic wing, the sort of the older version of republicanism. But you have five justices, you know, starting with Thomas and then Alito, and then the three recent appointees, they have been educated in the precepts and beliefs. They have from, I think, a very young age in their Catholic educations been told that liberalism is hostile to religion, that separating religion from the state is expressive of animus towards religion, is discriminatory against people of conservative faith. Many, if not all of them, are true believers in that. And you've distinguished in the past the difference between that type of discrimination and identity discrimination, such as race, ethnicity. Tell us a little about how that works. I'm not sure distinguish is the right word, but I am spending most of my time now thinking about how do we understand the category of belief or religion or faith in relation to the other suspect classifications. But insofar as the right to religious liberty has been redescribed as a right to freedom from discrimination, Religious groups and, you know, conservative Christians represent themselves as victims of discrimination. Their spokespersons oftentimes say Christians are the single most persecuted, discriminated against group in America and in the world. And framing their plight as they experience it that way begs the question, well, how is this discrimination like or unlike race discrimination or gender discrimination? or sexual orientation, or sexual identity discrimination, or discrimination on the basis of disability. Nomi, this is a good point to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. And when we return, 
Let's discuss whether there are distinctions between discrimination on the basis of belief versus discrimination of other protected classes. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertis is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. ProCertis is reshaping online learning. Come check us out at www.procertis.com. Welcome back to our discussion with religion and law expert Nomi Stolzenberg. Nomi, before the break, you were in the process of distinguishing whether there is a difference between discrimination based on beliefs and discrimination based on protected classes. This difference is important because it could be at the heart of whether there is a constitutional prohibition of faith-based discrimination. I don't want to say that discrimination on the basis of belief is nothing like or never like race discrimination or discrimination on the basis of these other categories. But I think there clearly is some essential difference that is elusive. And part of the issue is that religious group, which we think means shared religious practices, it's a matter of belonging. Well, maybe that's not so different from being a member of a racial group or a gender or something else. So it's not that they're never analogous, but what notice what I just did. I sort of took beliefs as propositions, as creeds out of the equation. I think the relevant dividing line is not actually that between religion on the one hand and race and gender and these other quote-unquote suspect classifications on the other. I think there's some other more important distinction that cuts across these different kinds of identity categories. That's the project that I am working on now. So if you get back to me, maybe at the end of the year, if you're interested, I have a theory about it. We are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsors. When we return, we're going to learn about how our guest, Nomi Stolzenberg, became immersed in the topics of law, religion, and the courts. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more, or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at trellis.law or visit our website, trellis.law. Welcome back. We're talking today with Professor Nomi Stolzenberg, an expert in law and religion. Nomi, how and why did you select religion and the law as an area of academic focus? Part of me wants to say I came to this topic by accident, but 
Freud tells us there are no accidents. But, uh, but I really did not begin all of 34 years ago, which is when I first became a law professor, with a conscious intention of wanting to specialize in law and religion. And I actually didn't own that even to myself as a field of expertise until maybe even not until about 10 or 15 years ago. But the fact of the matter is I was drawn to this incredibly complex field, which exists both at the level of abstract ideas and principles and legal doctrine and very real social movements and political movements that have always played a central role in American society and law and politics, and that were coming into much greater political visibility at the time that I began my career, which was in the late 80s. So even though you didn't have a personal background in religious theology, this complex national dialogue about religion and legal doctrine really resonated with you. What seized my attention then was what I think really is a precursor of what we are seeing today. We saw parents being mobilized to ferociously attack their local public school boards. The bogeyman of the 1980s school board battles was so-called secular humanism. So first, parents were mobilized to attack the, their local school boards, complain to local school boards that they felt the public schools were indoctrinating their children in so-called secular humanism. Nomi, so this movement challenging secular humanism started with local school board policies and elections. How did it eventually get to the courts? there was a pair of cases that made their way through the federal courts. In those days, the Supreme Court wasn't going to take an appeal. The Supreme Court back in the late 80s was not receptive to these complaints, although it was beginning to move in that direction. But you had these cases percolate through the courts of appeals, raising really, really interesting conundrums. Was it a violation of the free exercise rights of parents to, quote unquote, be forced to have their children be exposed to diverse lifestyles and values and beliefs that were inimical to their values and beliefs? Now, Nomi, let me, let me just ask for a minute. You're still talking about the 1980s, right? Not last month? Exactly. That's why I say it's a precursor. So then as now, parents in the name of parental rights and in the name of religious liberty rights were demanding the right to opt out, which is kind of a misnomer because what they were really demanding is the right to opt their children out. That is the right to decide that their children will not participate in any classroom or extracurricular activity in the public school that offends their beliefs. So the parents were claiming then that the, the proper interpretation of the free exercise clause granted that opt-out right. It's the same right that's being claimed today. 
and I don't want to jump too far ahead in our discussion, but because we're talking about the then and the now, it seems like now it's actually an opt-in requirement because what the parents are arguing for is something cannot be taught in my child's classroom. So parents who want the children to be exposed to certain ideas or concepts or people need to do that outside the school. Is that an accurate kind of shift in the thinking? Absolutely. So it begins as a demand of the right to opt out. And that pretty readily morphs into the demand that the schools not be teaching these materials at all. We saw that mode of request that might remind us, and these were also battles that were pretty hot back in the 70s and 80s over the teaching of evolution. And that maybe really is the first site of these kinds of battles. But you're exactly right. One way of trying to control the content of public school children's education is by merely removing their children from classrooms that are teaching things that they don't like while letting the rest of the school be exposed to this material. But the next step, exactly as you say, Jackie, is to say, actually, the schools shouldn't be teaching this stuff at all. We are going to take a brief break to hear from our sponsors, and when we come back, our guest, Nomi Stolzenberg, is going to help us understand how the Establishment Clause that prohibits a government-sponsored religion and the right to religious liberty both play out under the First Amendment. The hybrid online JD program at Monterey College of Law offers the flexibility to attend classes remotely. Two factors for me when choosing a law school were that it needed to be accredited and offer an online option. The hybrid program allows me to attend classes remotely, which really helps fit my professional and personal schedule. The program is structured and rigorous and taught by professors currently practicing in the legal field. To learn more or to apply for their next term, visit MontereyLaw.edu. I want to just back up a little bit because I know what we're talking about is incredibly complex and it starts in that First Amendment and we've mentioned both the Establishment Clause and Religious Liberty and they are very much in tension in, in that First Amendment. Just for the audience who is unfamiliar with the Establishment Clause in our Constitution and then this idea of religious liberty, how do those play out? Let me begin by answering your question directly, and then I'm going to sort of widen our perspective even a little bit more. As you know, Jackie, there are two different clauses in the First Amendment that address the topic of religion. In fact, it's the very first clause of the First Amendment, which the shorthand is, this is the Establishment Clause. The First Amendment begins by saying, Congress, Congress, shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And then it goes on to say, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So the very first principle stated in the First Amendment is a prohibition on Congress enacting laws respecting an establishment of religion. And then it goes on to say, nor shall Congress enact laws that prohibit the free exercise of religion. 
So those two clauses were always linked. Each of those clauses is susceptible to multiple interpretations. They can also be interpreted in ways that really harmonize those two principles. And here's where I want to sort of widen our historical lens even further, because we have a tendency to say it all starts with the First Amendment, but it actually starts before the First Amendment in the, in the colonial period. All of the Bill of Rights, the free speech clause, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, as well as free exercise of religion and establishment, these were constitutional limitations that were only placed on the federal government, indeed only on one branch of the federal government. All that the First Amendment said was that Congress shouldn't and doesn't have the constitutional authority to pass laws that interfere with the right to free speech or the right to freedom of religion, nor can it pass laws respecting an establishment of religion. And in fact, that worked for 150 years until 1947, when Everson versus Board of Education then muddied the waters by the court saying it's protected by the 14th Amendment, making it applicable to state laws and local ordinances. Exactly. Adoption of the 14th Amendment, which says states can't deny any citizen rights, privileges, and immunities. Now states are bound by the same limitations. That it jumps down to the level of school boards as well. Yes. The Supreme Court did not get around to applying the Establishment Clause or the Free Exercise Clause to states, and then in the same breath also to local governments, which includes public school districts, until the 1940s. The First Amendment didn't disestablish religion. It didn't tell states that had religious establishments, you can't do that anymore. As you suggested, Mitchell, it wasn't until the late 1940s that the Supreme Court said the prohibition on the establishment of religion by government, which textually is only directed to Congress, also means that states can't pass laws. That didn't happen until the 1940s. Men, states themselves disestablished. They decided for themselves. The, the U.S. Constitution allowed states to decide for themselves. We're going to take a brief break to hear from our sponsors, and when we return, we're going to shift our focus slightly to discuss how public school funding became the battleground for religious freedom. Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast that, like ours, is dedicated to understanding the big issues facing our democracy. An Honorable Profession profiles the rising stars in American politics. From mayors to attorney generals, An Honorable Profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out An Honorable Profession wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back to our discussion with law and religion expert Nomi Stoltenberg. We are discussing the history of religious freedom and public education as it is defined by the First Amendment. Nomi, how is it that money gets into this conversation instead of it just being the disestablishment of religion? From the beginning, what American-style establishment was, and this is different from what establishment looked like in England, it was local, as I just described. It was pluralistic, now within limits. Every community could decide for itself which church to support, which church to establish. 
but it had to be a church. Not only that, it had to be a Protestant church. So they were, from their point of view, trying to be pluralistic and liberal and allow for religious diversity, but you could only go so far. What it meant for a church or a religion to be established was precisely that it was supported from the public coffers. The towns were political entities that were empowered and in some colonies and later states required to levy taxes, as you said, for a variety of functions, including the employment of ministers to serve as the teachers, the civic educators of each community. We've all heard of Madison's famous remonstrance against what? Against exactly what you're focusing on, Mitchell, the use of taxpayers' money to support churches. What was he actually remonstrating against? It was a proposal to allow each community to decide for itself where its government collected taxes would go, which church, which minister would be employed to perform this public function. It was understood to be a public function of teaching that local community. And Madison said, that's not good enough. Even if you liberalize it and pluralize it and let everyone decide which church or minister they want their tax money to subvent, that won't adequately protect religious liberty. And furthermore, it will corrupt the religious bodies that are receiving government funds. After this brief break for a word from our sponsors, we're going to ask our guest, Nomi Stolzenberg, how the constitutional discussion has transitioned from protection of religious freedom to questions about whether the First Amendment now prohibits faith-based discrimination as a protected class. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. So we can understand where we've gotten from that money issue to faith-based discrimination that comes up in our current constitutional conversation. How do we get that transition? Okay, thank you for asking. So how do we get from there to here? You get the common school movement. That's a period that really runs from the 1830s all the way through the 1950s, Brown versus Board and really into the early 60s. And then comes a period of backlash. Backlash against A, disestablishment, and B, the fundamental principles and the practices of the common school movement. So what was the common school movement? First of all, it's, it's sort of, we didn't have public schools as we know them. We didn't have compulsory school laws until late 19th century. It was not required and not expected that every child go to school. If we're talking about formal schooling, there was every expectation that every citizen would receive a moral, civic education from the local minister. 
And an interesting question is, when states disestablished, it's very clear that they decided we should no longer be spending taxpayer money on hiring religious leaders to be our public instructors. That seems pretty clear. So who should it be done by? You know, the original idea that states, states should provide free education to all boys and girls, free And just to clarify, all white. It's a complicated story. And the interaction of racial politics with religion, and then there's class and gender inflection. So there's an immigration story. It's a complicated story. But it's very much animated by egalitarian and democratic ideals. Access to education shouldn't only be a privilege of the rich white landowning class. And if you look at the language of the, of the opinion in Brown versus Board, you see the rhetoric of the common school movement. Your audience might have thought we've forgotten about it. The free exercise clause and the establishment clause, because it is in that same period of time, starting in 1947, as you alluded to, Mitchell, the court finally says it's unconstitutional. It's a violation of the principle of separation of church and state, which we think is embodied in the Establishment Clause, even though it's not explicitly enumerated. It's unconstitutional for public funding to go to religious schools. It's also a violation of the Establishment Clause and the principle of separation of church and state for religion to be in the public schools. And more specifically, for prayer to be conducted in public schools and devotional Bible reading. So those are the holdings. The public school should be a domain where people from every different background, every different race, every different national origin, every different religion, we all come together in this shared common space where we shed the identities that divide us And we become inculcated in the values of a shared common culture. Yet you have a change, a total pivot at the Supreme Court level to turn the clock back to say prayer is fine, public funding is fine. What changed? Backlash. And we've been in that backlash moment ever since. That battle has been on for the last 50 years. It's been a long game with the eye on the courts and above all the Supreme Court. You've definitely helped us on the how did we get here? Where are we now? And your next work is going to be (laughs) where are we going forward? Nomi, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thanks so much to both of you for giving me this opportunity. Stay with us and hear Mitch and Jackie's thoughts on today's conversation. Jackie, it was fascinating to talk with Nomi Stolzenberg about the transition that the First Amendment Establishment Clause, as protected by the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause, has gone through in this country. And yet what we see is it was right there in the 1800s at the beginning. It was there again in the 1940s. It was there again in the 1960s. And now here we are in 2020, and it is no less a contentious issue that is framed by the United States Supreme Court than it was in 1947. 
You know, it was fascinating for me to think about my own family history as I was listening to her historical overview. Much of my family fled the UK as Catholics to come to the United States. They were not accepted. They were discriminated against. And I remember even when John F. Kennedy was elected as president of the United States in the 60s, there was a real fear about his Catholic faith being or influencing or interfering with his ability to govern because of the Catholic's connection to the Pope. Now we have six Catholics on the Supreme Court of the United States, and that arc of my family's travels through history is remarkable when you look at how much our society has changed. And her description of the coming together of conservative faith believers into one movement as being the catalyst for some of the changes we've seen right now was really enlightening to me. Part of the goal of this podcast is in part to help people see how different issues are actually interconnected. And we talk about religious discrimination or religious rights or the Establishment Clause, but I think Nomi did a really good job of showing how it's all connected to democracy and to civic engagement. We can't ignore how these arguments about religion and religious beliefs are deeply connected to our democracy and play a huge role in the future of our country. And as you like to remind us, it is critical to understand on each of these issues where we came from, where we are now, and where we're going. And this episode put that front and center. So I want to thank all of our Sidebar listeners who have listened to us. We would love to hear from you. You can find us at sidebarmedia.org, where you can also leave a comment. We'd love to know what's on your mind. Thank you to our producer and musical muse who composed and performed all of the music in today's episode, David Eakin. And thank you to our marketing director and social media millennial, Gogo Zoger. Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities. For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.